And hey, 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 welcome to CFRC 101.9. I am Michael Ashton Smith. You just heard Indie Wake Up Call, our regular here, plays every morning from 9 to 10. And this morning, Wednesdays throughout the summer, we have a show called Life of Kingston, broadcasting to you some of the arts and cultural events happening in your community this summer. Basically what happens is we take a look at a recap of some events that happened last week, some interviews with some people who are doing some cool stuff around the city, and then we cap it off by just highlighting some events that are going to be happening over the next week that you guys can check out. And so the first event that I went to last week was Indigenous Peoples Day and there was a big celebration down at Confederation Park near the water. It was awesome. There were plenty of events. There were drum circles where any participants were encouraged to just come down, pick up a drum, and participate in Indigenous rituals. Uh, on top of that, there were plenty of vendors. There were plenty of visitors. And then there was also some performances by Shimmering Waters and Two Feathers, as well as the Indigenous electropop artist Wolf Saga. And so I tried to get some interviews from some people who were down at the event, but as will be a theme throughout my show today, a lot of the recordings were of pretty poor quality just due to some issues that I was having with the microphone. So a lot of those are spoiled. But the nice thing is, because they're spoiled, that opens up a lot more time for content on today's show. And so part of what I'm going to be doing with that time is playing some music. And this first song that I'm going to be playing today is from Wolf Sega, who was actually at Confederation Park last week. And this song is a single of theirs from 2017 called When the Storm Has Passed.
So here we are. We're going to start off with some interviews from last week talking about the Skeleton Park Arts Festival, which happened obviously at Skeleton Park and it happened all weekend. There was plenty of booths, plenty of activities, and even a couple bands to showcase some of the awesome talents coming around this community. So let's kick things off here today with an interview that I got last Saturday with Cédric Lecoing, who is a new worker with the Centre Culturel Frontenac, which is a group that has a mandate to unite, coordinate, and serve the Francophone community and their interests in Kingston in a community that is otherwise predominantly Anglophone. And so some of that involves coordinating a lot of arts and cultural events, which is perfect for our show here. So I got an interview with him just talking about some of the events that are going to be coming up in the near future in the Francophone community. And I apologize in advance because we had a problem with the actual microphone. So my voice is going to be a little bit quiet here. I'll try and boost it somehow using radio edit magic, but there might be a little bit of a problem with the audio quality. Apologies in advance for that. And welcome. I am here with Cédric Lecoing. And you are with a tent here at the Skeleton Park Arts Festival. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your tent here today? Yeah, I'm representing the uh, Centre Culturel Frontenac, which is the French uh, art and culture, uh, let's say, presenter in Kingston for the Francophone and Francophile communities. Awesome, and so what are some of the important things that you're here to promote at Skeleton Park Day? Yeah, we do have a summer camp uh, in French for kids uh, going from, uh, spanning from 6 to 12. Uh, there will have some, uh, let's say, uh, teachings in, uh, in arts, in uh, uh, scene arts, uh, as well as visual arts and circus uh, activities. And we're here also to promote the our 2019-2020 uh, artistic uh, season, uh, which we will launch on the 27th of June at the Blue Martini at seven. Okay. And do you do any arts yourself, or are you an administrator? I'm the executive director myself, uh, so I'm running the, this little business. It's a not-for-profit organization. And uh, personally, I do play piano. I love music in general. And so how did you, what, what was the inspiration for this? What did you, uh, I guess, why did you create the Sausage Well, actually, it's a long story. Uh, I come from France. I'm brand new to Canada. And we uh, we've spotted Kingston as a nice place to live with my family. We applied a couple of months ago to be permanent residents. And my French community gave me my first job, basically, with the uh, Centre Culturel Frontenac. So this is my first position in Canada, and I enjoy it a lot. So it helps me also to, you know, to make so many connections through the arts, through the, through the culture. And uh, I love it. And uh, it's, it's a nice day out here today, has it? What if, uh, some <laughs> what are the coolest visitors that you've seen here today? Wow. Uh, this is a difficult question because, yeah, I would say probably the ones that ask me some questions, so let's say, like you today. Uh, no, it's, it's very, it's so interesting and so amazing to see all those people from different horizons, uh, different cultures, different uh, uh, countries sometimes. 
and they all mix together here and to, to try to enjoy this uh, solstice uh, festival and, and so I will, I'm not able to, to point out anybody in, 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 in any how but it's just amazing to see all these people, all different people that love, uh, that enjoy this day with uh, discovering culture. Awesome, thank you so much Cedric. My pleasure. <laughs> and so I just want to point out one mistake that I did make in that interview. I asked Cedric why he created uh, the organization when in fact he did not. He's a recent recruit as the executive director. In fact, the Centre Culturel Frontenac has been around since the 70s or the 80s, and I apologize for that. Up next, we have an interview that I got with Michelle of the Marine Museum of the Great Lakes of Kingston, and she had a booth at the Skeleton Park Arts Festival talking about some shipwrecks or some scuba divers and those going on in Kingston, and that intrigued me. I wanted to find out why, and you can too. Here is the interview. Welcome, I am here today with... Michelle Clarabat. And so she's running a booth here today at the Skeleton Park Arts Festival, and I'm just going to ask her a couple questions about what she is doing here. And so I see signs around, so one says scuba diving, one says shipwrecks. There's a lot of graphs, there's images. What's going on here? Uh, so we are from the Marine Museum of the Great Lakes of Kingston, uh, and this year we have our pop-up exhibit on shipwrecks, and it's all about local shipwrecks. We've highlighted uh, seven of them that are very well known in the area, or that have a very interesting backstory. So the scuba diving poster is kind of telling the exploration element of uh, shipwrecks, and then our main panels uh, have feature a map with ID cards that point to all the different locations of the seven ships, and we also have the um, images of the shipwrecks that are now identified on our map and we, so we invite people to kind of guess which shipwrecks go to with which ships so it's a bit of a trivia game and then we also have um, some invasive species elements so jars of fish and zebra mussels that are uh, in type of both types of invasive species that show up in our lakes and affect the ecosystem because there's no natural predators and so they affect both not just the ecosystem but also the archaeological sites which are the shipwrecks and so the last image is a picture of the Annie Falconer um, in 2005 with, that, shows the that demonstrates the impact of the zebra mussels on the shipwrecks. Um, they, so many of them cluster together that it becomes too heavy and then thus destroying the archaeological site. So what is the significance of these shipwrecks as archaeological sites, or I guess related to Kingston's own history? So all the ones that we've selected are, were either built in Kingston or served in and around Kingston. For instance, we have the two well-known ones, the HMS St. Lawrence and the HMS Prince Regent, both from the War of 1812, both built in Kingston. And um, so because they're archaeological sites, they are very important to the cultural heritage, cultural heritage of Kingston, the historical significance being that they served in the War of 1812. They were built here by people from here. And um, the other ones are demonstrate later periods in history, primarily the 19th and early 20th century but really give an idea of the type of vessels that were serving at that particular time, um, what it was like to serve on them, and um, paint a bit, a bit of a picture of how people were traveling at that particular time. And so did this, or the preservation of these ships, does that continue to teach us anything about the history from those times, or have we learned most of what we need to know from these ships already? That's a very good question. Um, so a lot of the preservation work that's being done is through our partner, um, which is the 
preserve our shipwrecks organization. And so they go out and they put buoys out actually at all the different shipwrecks. And it's important to do that because in the not too distant past, what often happened is that we had uh, people were coming in and removing items from shipwrecks. And actually shipwrecks are underwater archeological sites. They're archeological sites in the sense of history. They preserve our history, they're very well preserved, but in many cases they're also grave sites. Um, and so it's very important to protect and uh, respect these places um, as places of, places of history. They're an instance where a particular piece of time has been preserved underwater. And they're important in that sense. And so there's a brief history of scuba diving here. So I think myself and probably most of our listeners here are more familiar with scuba diving in the Caribbean sense, mm-hmm. where it's just for pleasure, for fun. Uh, what is, is there any difference between I guess, recreational scuba diving, or is that beyond your expertise? Uh, it's or can you just walk question. us through this scuba yes, diving poster so here? The scuba diving poster takes us from 500 BC to the present day, and it's really just to paint a picture of the evolution of scuba diving and more so the equipment that was used. Um, so there's some pictures that are from, ones from a design that Leonardo da Vinci actually modified that is basically a leather suit with some tubes that go up to the ceiling. We have one that kind of looks like a, an individual submarine where your arms stick out. Um, some that are a bit more encased. And then we get more of the Jacques Cousteau era, which is very much the modern s- scuba suit. The last one being one that's actually at the Science and Technology Museum in Ottawa that looks like a spacesuit, but it's great because it preserves the pressure that you would get on the surface underwater. And so astronauts use, to train in, use it to train in. So I'm pers- personally not a scuba diver. Um, I've done snorkeling, but haven't done the scuba diving element. And I'm trying to remember your question. Um, so you're more familiar with the shipwreck side of things? Yes, the hi- they, uh, yeah, I'm a historian, so I'm more okay. familiar with the, the history side of it. Um, but in terms of the local, I know the local area is very much interested in scuba diving. There are a few organizations that do amateur scuba, di- um, scuba diving, take people out, and then you can also do take your certificate, for instance. The, some of the shipwrecks are in actually quite shallow waters, so up to 100 feet so it's for the amateur scuba diver. Uh, and then some of them are in 300 feet, so you, a professional is what you need for there. And then actually off uh, in between uh, Wolf Island and Garden Island, so you actually pass it on the f- ferry going out to Wolf Island, It's only uh, there's a bay there that's only about six to eight feet of water, and there's about 15 to 20 shipwrecks all in that area that even just a snorkeler can go out and see very clearly, or even just from a boat you can get to look down and see them all very well intact. And so our ships continue to being discovered? I guess if someone were to go scuba diving in Lake Ontario themselves, could they find a new ship that no one would have ever seen before? Uh, most likely. there's. I know there's a few that um, they haven't revealed the location. Again, going back to the fact that they're, um, they're so very well preserved, intact that they don't want people looting them. So they're trying to maintain the integrity of this archaeological site. Um, but you could definitely, there's, there's still instances that they're trying to find ships that have, they know have sunk um, or have been lost and they're still trying to find them. So I imagine there's quite a few out there that uh, are still remain a mystery for the uh, amateur scuba diver or the professional, the adventurer. <laughs> Uh, so I think that's about all the questions that I do have today. Are there any other comments about shipwrecks or your own organization that you want to talk about? Mm. Uh, so many people think that the Marine Museum of Kingston, uh, Marine Museum of the Great Lakes at Kingston is actually closed. We're not. We're still open. Um, we used to be based downtown at Ontario Street, next to the, not far from the Pump House Museum. But we're now um, at Portsmouth Olympic Harbor, where we're there temporarily with a storefront gallery. 
Um, so our most of our collections and archives are in storage, but we're nevertheless still open to the public, and we welcome everyone to come down and say hi. Awesome. Thank you. Nice to meet you. And so big thanks to Michelle from the Marine Museum of the Great Lakes for her awesome and informative interview right there. So if you guys want to check out the Marine Museum, you can do that whenever you want. It's just down at 53 Young Street, so it's super close and it's super accessible. Lots of great stuff to check out there. But in terms of other great stuff, there were plenty of bands playing all day at the Skeleton Park Arts Festival. And unfortunately, they did... Uh, interfere, let's say, with a lot of the interviews that I got. But a cool thing about that is that instead of actually playing interviews while these bands are in the background, I can just play these bands and the cool music that they're playing on the day so you guys can see what it was like down at Skeleton Park last week. So this one song we've got up is called De... Or from a band called De Trois, and uh, the song is Monday to Friday. It is their most recent single. You can find it on Bandcamp, or maybe even find them playing the song sometime around. And then after that, we will have an interview with Emily Pelstring, who is a faculty member at the Queen's Department of Film and Media. She currently has an exhibit down at the Agnes Etherington Center, so we'll just be talking a little bit about her exhibit, her art, and then also about holograms. So before that, just make sure to check out De Trois, Monday to Friday.
And so now we are here with Emily Pelstring. She is an artist and filmmaker based in Canada. She's a full-time faculty in the Department of Film and Media at Queen's University. And her creative work has been supported by grants from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and the Canada Council for Arts. Her films, performances, and installations have been shown internationally in galleries and festivals, despite working close by here at Queen's. In her single-channel animations, she experiments with optical filtering and textural effects by processing images through analog video effects units, as well as weirder and more convoluted means of image manipulation. Her installations have employed holography, stereography, animated peppers, ghost displays, and projection-mapped video in conjunction with built material elements. And these pieces reference magic shows and the occult and draw links between spirituality, wonder, and illusion. Emily also has a longstanding investment in the creative strategies of feminist media art, particularly practices of reclamative myth-making, collaboration, and collectivity, speculative futurisms, and the use of camp aesthetics. These interests have led her... These interests have let her build collaboratively produced bodies of work, most notably with Inflatable Deities, an artistic duo with Jessica Mensch, and more recently with The Powers, a music performance and video collaboration with Jessica Mensch and Catherine Klein. And today we have Emily in with us today to discuss her most recent installation at the Agnes Etherington Center called Any Saint. And glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, before we get into the exhibit itself, let's set up a little bit of context. Uh, Your training is in film and animation, so most of your work falls under these categories. And so what are some common themes that routinely pop up throughout your work? Um, uh, Well, with regards to this um, exhibit in particular, I was really interested in um, more of like the emotional value of the cinematic. So I'm thinking about uh, the projection of fantasies onto technologies of representation. And I'm not that obsessed with, um, I, I don't have that myopic of a focus actually on cinema, even though I teach in film and media and video. It um, is kind of my, um, I use video a lot, but um, I'm also thinking about other technologies of representation. So, like, you know, um, thinking about other things that are equally miraculous, you know, kind of like cinema is this kind of has a magic to it, a sort of, um, it's a, a magical spectacle, really. But I'm also thinking about holograms, also a magical technology. Um, stained glass, in a way, um, it has a sort of magic, uh, or um, has a, a kind of similar, it's kind of a, it's a light spectacle. It's a spectacle of light and space and movement. Um, And I would include mirrors and print media and things that we normally wouldn't think of as being um, uh, related to cinema in that way. So in terms of the representation of these abstract or concrete concepts, uh, would you say that's where your interest really lies, at least for the Any Saint exhibition? Well, there's more to it than that, but that's, um, I think that's where my f- starting, pl- I usually start with, f- with a formal interest and then figure out what kind of uh, content, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, can elaborate on that formal interest or make it more robust. And so I am also, in addition to like 
questions about the medium itself and like kind of the ontology of the medium itself like where is the image formed how is it formed like what is happening in this relay between um, body and architecture and apparatus right um, in addition to those kinds of questions I'm also thinking about storytelling you know I'm also thinking about um, myth and yeah and so those kinds of like what kinds of stories do I um, want to put into the into this apparatus you know yeah so I guess trying to decipher that it's there's the formal aspect and then there's the content aspect and it's just the blending of those two yeah I mean I wouldn't um, I mean, I guess there's a lot of people who don't think about those two things separately, but in my process, I really do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I guess regarding the formal aspect, uh, where do you get inspiration? Where do those fascinations with light, say, come from? Um, I think it was just, you know, it's it's to start, how far back do you want to go? I mean, <laughs> um, I did my undergraduate in animation and I was always a drawer, you know, I was a, a draftsman as a, um, a teen and a young adult. So, um, and I was also simultaneously a dancer. And so when I applied to art school, I thought I had never done animation, but I thought, you know what, this seems like a, um, way to combine these two things that I can't, I can't make a career out of both of these things. I can't be a visual artist and a performing artist. I found out that that wasn't true later. But at the time, I, you know, I was training in these kind of traditional disciplinary modes where I was told by my mentors and teachers, you need to pick something, you know. <laughs> so I said, you know what, animation is like a, a meeting place of my interest in choreography and movement and my interest in the visual, visual arts and design. So that is how I started started um you know uh um that is how I got introdu introduced to the moving image as a, a medium and I went to Rhode Island School of Design and uh it was a really uh, it was a program that just kind of you know their pedagogical model was to just offer you these tools and say okay yeah here's you know here's the camera here's how it works here's the material uh literally do whatever you want with it um, and so it was kind of a playground to just mess with, um, you know, light tables and bleach and, you know, projectors and whatever, as, as if they were just artistic materials like any other. So I wasn't trained in an industrial narrative model. So I think that that might, that influences the, you know, the ways that I work now. Awesome. So that's a little bit about the form. And then regarding the content, I guess that's probably a good segue into the exhibit itself, talking about the content of any saint. Uh, so just to briefly capture what our listeners would be able to see when they go into the exhibit, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about just the general setup of the exhibit? Sure, absolutely. That's really easy. So you walk into the space and what you see on the walls, um, it's, it's the Davies Gallery at the Agnes Etherington Art Center should say that um so when you walk in it's a it's a small uh, well it's the room is about 30 by 30 i think uh feet it's a white cube um so you walk in and it's dimly lit um but the light is mostly coming from uh four projectors and what you see on the wall is these kind of distorted uh blurry refracted images that are kind of cartoon they're cartoony um they're you know vertically oriented portrait style um cartoon like 
um, images and they are um, and then you see that there's this kind of semicircle arrangement of stained glass panels that are hanging from the ceiling and those are maybe 18 by 20 inches each and there's a projector projecting through those stained glass panels so you realize how the image how those cartoons that you're seeing on the wall those kind of blurry uh, refracted uh, cartoons are actually um, being projection mapped through the stained glass panels and that is what is. so they're essentially animated stained glass panels they're being projected onto and through and so that's the kind of focus of the exhibition that's like the large piece there's a series of four of them um, one of them depicts a, a skeleton hand coming out of some flames holding an egg um, and you can kind of glimpse this like 3D digital grid like space behind it and there's these tiny figures kind of swimming it's kind of like human stick figures kind of swimming through that space and there's one kind of swimming around in the egg and then there's a piece um, and that piece is called Death Offers an Egg and then there's a piece called The Sublimation of Sushi which is the only symmetrical one and it's in the middle that one um, has kind of three cat heads with wings and they're blinking and there's fl a flame underneath. Um, one depicts an octopus bursting through uh, an old CRT monitor that's at the bottom of the ocean floor um, and the CRT monitor has kind of like television fuzz and like analog video feedback. Um, that one's called The Interruption and then the last panel is called The Witch of Keys and it is a long-haired which uh, smoking a joint and playing a kind of warped synthesizer, which you don't hear. <laughs> and so it's kind of cool because the projection actually projects onto these glass panels and there's almost like an animation on the panel itself, on the image through the panel, and then also on the refraction yes. backwards. Yeah. Uh, and so you see like the cats blinking and the witch playing the piano and all that stuff. And it's it's a really cool exhibit. Um, but in terms of the actual use of glass panels, uh, why did you start to kind of dive into glass panels as a medium? Um, so that was, you know, that was just from traveling and visiting churches. Oh, and you know what? Actually, it started, it was problem solving too. A lot of my ideas come from like, I have a problem. So I think of like a solution to that problem. And, and sometimes the solution just get, brings me in a new direction. It's kind of like, I don't know, that have you seen that show, Nathan, for you? Where it's I all, love that show. It's like yeah. absurdist problem solving. Yes. So I love that show, too, because I love the logic of being brought into like totally different tangents because you're trying to come up with a solution to something. I think it's so funny. And this actually reflects a little bit how my art practice is. So I wanted to work. My initial problem was that, uh, you know, I had been doing these uh, Pepper's Ghost uh, displays. So that was my like previous body of work. And it was like I had a screen and it was reflecting onto glass and I had a 3D kind of, you know, um, image. Um, and it's an old theater trick. It's used in haunted houses a lot, um, you know, vintage haunted houses like at Disney World and stuff. You use this trick to make it look like there's ghosts floating in the set. So I was using that on a miniature scale and making these sculptures that had these like 3D ghost 
elements in it. And I was referring to them as holograms just um, because they looked 3D um, in terms of their position and depth, although they were like on a flat plane. And I was like, okay, I got to stop doing that because they're not actually holograms. They are Pepper's ghost illusions. Um, I just need to be specific about the technology I'm using. Um, So I was like, but you know what? I should actually make a hologram. And so I started researching how to make holograms, um, the kind of hologram that you will see um, like on your uh, credit card or something like those, you know, the little stickers or or if you had if you're of my generation, you had like pogs and slammers, like a lot of times the slammers would have like a hologram sticker. So I wanted to do that kind of I wanted to work with that technology. And so I went to a studio in New York um, that, you know, where they teach workshops. It's actually just one guy, um, Jason Sepan, and his his nickname is Dr. Laser uh, because holograms are actually made with lasers. So uh, I wanted to make a glass plate. I loved the look of the glass plate holograms. I was also thinking about these Pepper's Ghost displays also used glass. I was like, I need to I need to further my exploration of optics and use of glass. Um, and so the hologram seemed like it was going to be it, but it's very difficult and expensive to make a hologram. So I could only make a really small one. So I was like, how am I going to make this work in, and this is part of my like gallery practice. I was like, how am I going to make a small hologram work in a large space? So I was like, I know I'll embed it in stained glass. That was my initial idea. Still have not figured out how to do that. Got sidetracked, <laughs> but, um, I do, there is a hologram, that hologram is in the show. The first, hol- first and only hologram I've made is in the show and it's my hand, um, and it's embedded into a mirror. Um, on the wall and the mirror is cracked and it looks as if there's a hand kind of in a space behind the mirror that's like about to emerge and that's the image that they're using to promote this show because you know it looked good in close up um, but yeah so that piece is called scrying mirror um, and that that was kind of like one one way I was able to continue my exploration of glass and optics you know, and then the other direction was, okay, well, I can still make stained glass. I can't put the hologram in the stained glass because of the specifics of the way it needs to be displayed, um, the specifics of how the light needs to hit it, what needs to be behind it, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and so my stained glass project was like just kind of like a branch off of that. I just did both different separately. And so I spoke with another guest on this show a couple weeks ago who was really excited about holograms as technology in art. And he said that, you know, we might get to a point eventually where you don't really know if the person in front of you performing is human or a hologram themselves. Uh, For example, someone could be doing a performance in Vancouver and then people in Montreal could be watching this as a live performance. Oh, yeah, like the Tupac. Like the Tupac thing, but almost (laughs) a live feed as a hologram. Yeah. it, and do you, I mean, barring any expenses, because uh, you mentioned that it's expensive, do you think like this would be something that you could see yourself being interested in pursuing in the future? No way. <laughs> no way? <laughs> no, I just, um, so I really like to, I like to work with materials and I like to explore techniques, but I don't like to spend too much, I like to balance my working time between being on the computer uh, animating and building something physical. Um, so I like analog processes, analog photography processes, processes that feel very immediate and organic. Um, and I just know, having done um, 
you know, uh, a lot of stuff with software and stereoscopy even. Um, I just know that um, the process of doing that stuff takes so much um, takes so much time on the computer. <laughs> Yeah. That I just like, I just need my computer time to be quick and easy. It was, you know, so I come up with projects that, that like allow me to balance that. And I like the handmade organic feel. And it's also important to me not to have illusions be complete. This is actually conceptually important. So in something like the Tupac hologram, the direct, the, there's a value behind it. There are politics behind that. There is a direction that that technology is going. It is the same thing as HD video. It is all moving towards higher resolution. Um, you know, the, you know, Bazan's like myth of total cinema. Um, it's like, can we um, like the the blurry line between like is how real can we make this look you know and I am totally opposed to making things look real so artifice is a, like a deep I'm in, invested in artifice and I'm invested in um, the apparatus being quite visible almost clunky I've used I use I was using CRT monitors in 2017 in a gallery um, that's like an obvious choice, right? That's not, um, I'm not, I don't want, I will never um, make work that looks uh, that kind of seamless and slick. And so at this uh, exhibit, you also have a piece called The Witch's Hut. And so this is the one that occupies physical space more than any of the other ones because those are not only, they do occupy physical space, but they're up above you. You can't really touch them they're not tangible same with the scrying mirror it's not tangible mm -hmm. but the witch's hut is this big piece in this 30 by 30 room occupying physical space what's the relationship between space and light going on in that exhibit there oh that's that's actually a really good and interesting observation um because yeah there is the other things are ephemeral right um and they're, t you know, and I'm playing with the idea of 2D and 3D pictorial space. Um, so that is, uh, that is interesting. So the hut, the hut was a last minute addition and it was to house the animation, which is work. And it, it, I think like just compositionally in terms of theatrics in the space, um, I was really worried about it being too uh, delicate or too reverent. Um, you know, especially with the, the, you know, my interest in stained glass was obviously around its, you know, you could tell by the title of the show, its association with religious iconography um, and the kind of reverent spaces that are set up, um, you know, using that stuff, using that medium. So um, the witch's hut is this really important um, kind of organic uh, antidote. So it's like, it's low to the ground, so you have like a play on heights. You can go inside of it. You can sit on it. It's got a, it's cushioned. There's pillows in there. Um, it's made of fur, so um, it's like a soft space. Um, so in contrast to the glass and the height and the kind of ephemeral um, light projections, there is something that is soft and squishy and furry and organic and that you can touch and that you can be inside of. And it's, it provides some seating so you can sit in there. Um, and it also houses this narrative animation, uh, which kind of, ex um, the there's some images in the animation that expand on or speak to the image in the scrying mirror or the image in uh, some of the stained glass panels. 
And so with this witch's hut and the stained glass, uh, as you put it, there's a juxtaposition of low culture and carnivalesque elements uh, in this place of higher reflection, which is the gallery itself. And so what was the intention behind this juxtaposition there? Um, well, I'm always interested in tensions and contrasts. Um, and you know how I was saying I would never make a two-pop hologram style hologram? Yeah. So it's that. It's that I kind of believe in, um, me- like, I kind of believe in asserting the uh, value in playfulness, in um, messiness, in dirt, in uh, the organic, in the clunky, in the broken, in the campy, in the kitsch. Uh, I kind of, I, my heart is there. I think there, there is like a, an inherent politics in that. Um, it might, it maybe comes a little bit from my uh, sort of like punk root that's in me somewhere. Um, but yeah, I, those things are just important to me. Um, it, well, you know, it's obvious that there's kind of hierarchical structures that guide, that are exclusive, <laughs> that guide um, the institutions that support me. So I'm always, I'm always operating in tension with those, you know, like that there is always something that feels like it doesn't, um, it's not quite right, you know. And so to get this campiness you intentionally use technologies from a bunch of different areas or eras uh specifically even stuff like old vhs videos in some of your animations but you're also using some cutting edge technologies like holograms um is the variance intentional there like are you purposely using some newer technologies it's interesting that you say VHS and that you say uh, holograms are cutting edge because, first of all, the hologram technology I'm using there was developed in 1971. <laughs> so it's not new <laughs> at all. So, it, yeah, um, that's a 70s technology. And um, I don't actually use VHS in my animations. I, do use, I, I specify that they're analog video effects units. And those come from the 80s and 90s, all the stuff that I'm using. Um, actually, one piece is newer than that, is from the 2000s. But yeah, so there's no v- VHS is like home video system cassette tape, you know, technology. So I don't use tape um, in my process. I actually capture, I capture directly to digital. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think that in order for me to even use those old technologies, I have to use digital technologies. Like I have to have a new computer and I have to have the right you know, the cables that will interface with it. And I have to use software. So, you know, there's this inherent mixing of um, times, you know, um, that I think is, you know, technology from different times that I think is interesting. And it is meant to talk about the issue of technological obsolescence, you know, just the idea that, um, I don't know, I'm just trying to create a sort of juxtaposition of times, um, to show that things return, things come back, things morph. Um, yeah, it's not as uh, there's a blurring that happens between the technology of one era and the next. Those moments are often interesting. Um, yeah, I, I like the evolution of technology um, and I like linking the old to the new. So putting digital animations and using 
brand new projection mapping software on stained glass, which is, you know, obviously very old. Um, I like putting those two things in, in proximity to one another because I think that in doing that, I'm able to make something that is new, is new, is new now, you know. Anyway. Uh, and so I guess moving on from the technology, uh, you gave a talk and a tour of the exhibit last week. What were some of the things that you, or even a performance I think was in there as well. Yeah. Uh, so what was that performance about? <laughs> the performance was called Betty Davis Eyes, and it was about um, looking. <laughs> it was about eyeballs. Um, it had... I had projected behind me uh, clips of old, um, you know, old 50s educational films of how the eye works and uh, kind of vision and some math about optics that I didn't understand. And then I performed a cover of the song Betty Davis Eyes. Um, Betty Davis was a, um, you know, a Hollywood golden era film actress um, and, you know, who did a lot of women's pictures. Um, and so it's this kind of joke about, um, looking at Betty Davis's eyes. So the idea of like looking at the eyes. So, you know, the very old, um, worn out argument about women as objects in cinema to be looked at, um, here is just, I'm just kind of making an absurd play on that, um, and kind of tying that to science and the organics of looking at eyes um, and, uh, so the, the images behind me are like dissecting eyes. There's like eye surgery. Anyway, just to kind of cast it as like not romantic, um, but quite a uh, gross, um, and quite visceral. And just to kind of show like there, wow, there's really no limit to how much we need to look at. <clears throat> we actually need to take the eye apart and look at that and make a diagram of it. We actually are, are, are so obsessed with vision and we're so ocular centric. And there was a funny part of the performance where it was, it was kind of like a karaoke version of that song, but kind of distorted. And <clears throat> I used like a MIDI track that I manipulated of the song. And then I, there's a, I had giant googly eyes glued to my butt cheeks. <laughs> so there's a reveal of that happening. Um, so it's just kind of like there and there were, you know, googly eyes on my boobs. I had a bodysuit under it wasn't nude. I'm very, you know, conservative in that way. Um, and, uh, yeah, so and I had, like, a bowl full of eyeball rubber eyeballs that I threw on the floor um, and handed to people so they could touch eyes. Um, yeah, so that was what the performance was. Um, and, yeah, because I'm, I'm talking, and it links to the exhibition only insofar as I'm talking about pictorial representation. And then there was a, a sort of... Um, uh, moment where I had I was using glass as an instrument so I had jars full of shards of glass that were cutaways from the stained glass panels so I used those in, as an instrument a little bit and I thought it was kind of funny and visceral something funny and visceral about putting sharp glass and the sound of breaking glass so close to a show that's about like a kind of expensive and precious way of um, using glass but also in, <laughs> in proximity to images of eyeballs I thought there was like a little danger in there anyway that was the performance uh, and then just one last question as we wrap things up here uh, I'm interested in electronic music and I've got another show on here 
I've played U.S. Girls and Joseph Chavison on there, and I've noticed that you've worked with them in the past, and I was just yeah. wondering how those collaborations came about. Joseph Chavison is an old friend and a dear friend, um, so that is how that came about. Um, and U.S. Girls, I was a fan of hers back when she was um, doing noise music out of a suitcase, and at the time when when we met, it was like... Um, I was um, playing in bands a lot in Montreal, and that's how I was going to a lot of shows and just meeting a lot of musicians, and I wanted to, I had kind of become very disillusioned with filmmaking after my MFA and, you know, after working for a year, Um, and the way that I was going to get back into film um, or just have a practice at all, I was so much more drawn to the music scene than the art scene because it was um, more free form, more anything goes. The doors seemed more open. It was less institutionally, didn't seem as exclusive. And as a young person who was rather broke and, you know, was not a Canadian citizen and couldn't get grants and that kind of stuff, I turned to, to playing music um, t- as a creative outlet. And so that's how I started making music videos and and doing that kind of stuff. So it's always been a part of my life. I still, my band, The Powers, is still very much a band, but we're all, we also have, um, we're all, we also make a TV show and, you know, have this kind of expanded practice, but it's it's rooted in, in playing music together. Which is great because as a radio station here, it's it's yeah. hard to portray some of the more visual things but with a lot of the audio stuff it's it's great to have that overlap between visual and music uh so that's about all the time that we do have for today thank you so much emily for coming on it was a pleasure having you uh for anyone out there intrigued by the topics here you should absolutely go down and visit her exhibition at the agnes uh it will be there until I think August 5th is the last day, but it could be August 4th or something. Regardless, people have time to go down there and check it out. Uh, There's awesome pieces down there to browse, uh, so make sure to check that out. Any Um, last comments that you have for today? Thank you so much for having me on the show, Michael. It's nice talking to you. And I can't stress enough how cool that exhibit is. Make sure to check that out. Up next, we have a song. This person was also at the Skeleton Park Arts Festival performing. She is a Juno-nominated singer. She is a Polaris Prize-nominated singer. Uh, She's been making waves in the Canadian folk community for a bit now. This is Kaya Cater, and this is the title track off of her last album called Grenades. Two seasons in vain 
and tremor and sway with hands on grenades. Drive the light from the shade like an orange blockade. We always seem to get played. See the men on parade. See the men. So that is the time that we do have for today. Thank you so much for tuning me into Life of Kingston. Uh, I'm just going to do a quick recap of some things that are going to be going on next week that you guys might want to check out as well. So starting up, we're going to have Movies in the Square, which is the city of Kingston playing a movie at Market Square every Thursday. And last week was the first week, but tomorrow is the second movie they're playing. I believe it's Back to the Future. Uh, on top of that, we have the National Pickleball Championships happening this Friday in Kingston, which is awesome to see. It's like a mix between ping pong 
and tennis and badminton. It's really easy to pick up, but there's going to be some high-level pickleball being played in Kingston this Friday. After that, we have Art Fest, which is happening the entire weekend down at City Park. And that's just a case for uh, a lot of artists to showcase their art to the public and for public to get involved in local art scene in Kingston. Uh, and then obviously there's the Canada Day celebrations, which will be going on all throughout downtown. And that's a quick recap of some highlights of arts and cultural events that are going to be going on next week. That's about all the time that we do have for today. So once again, I would like to thank you all for tuning in. I am Michael Ashton Smith. This was Life of Kingston. Make sure to tune in next Wednesday at 10 for some awesome arts and cultural events. Uh, some awesome interviews with some people that are organizing stuff in your community. Thank you very much and have a great day. I'm going to pass you off to our next program. Want to help make Queens a positive space? Well, you can by attending a short workshop put on by the Positive Space Program. Once enlightened, you can post a Positive Space sticker in your work, living, or study area, helping to create a campus free of discrimination. Contact the Human Rights Office or email P-O-S-S-P-A-C-E at queensu.ca. Remember, look for the stickers with the rainbow triangle and a Q which designates a queer positive space. <laughs>